Hey there folks, Alex Lokes here, and this is Classic Camera Revival, and in 1975, a scientist with Eastman Kodak created a digital camera. Kodak, of course, suppressed this um, thing, fearing that it would infringe on their film sales, which I honestly think was the biggest mistake that Kodak ever did. But despite... If you don't open your credit card bill, you still got to pay your credit card bill. Yes, exactly. But as we like to uh, consider ourselves fans and promoters of pre-2000 cameras, that doesn't change the fact that by 2000, digital was pretty much on the rise, but that did not stop a lot of companies from still producing film cameras. And in fact, even here in 2018, film cameras are still produced today. So this episode, we are going to be talking about some of our favorite cameras from the millennium. That is cameras produced after the year 2000. And I am not filling my bathtub with water again. Coming to you live from Toronto, Canada, this is the Classic Camera Revival. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you certainly will after listening to our show. Okay, well, this is a fairly Nikon-heavy show, so let's start with something across the Pacific Ocean, and that is John Meadows and the Voigtlander Bessa, when Voigtlander was not a German camera anymore. Yep, and I've talked about my Bessa R2M before, so I'm going to try and expand the um, the context a bit this time around. Um this is when Voigtlander, the trade name had been licensed or bought by Casina, so Voigtlander that we all know and like, they're gone, dead, they've been buried, someone else took the name. But uh, Cosina, at least back then, decided that what the world needed was uh, more 35 millimeter rangefinders and also lenses so that your only option wasn't to go brand new Leica gear, which is, you know, mucho dinero, or used gear, which sometimes is still mucho dinero. And they started off with a very interesting camera in the uh, the early 2000s, and this was the Bessa L. This was a 35-millimeter camera with through-the-lens metering, but no built-in viewfinder. And the reason why that was the case is it came out at the same time as a fairly historic lens, the 15-millimeter f4.5, I want to say, rectilinear, not as painful as it sounds, rectilinear wide-angle lens which you know, means like no, basically no distortion, non-fisheye, and it came with a, uh, an auxiliary viewfinder. And at that time, you know, f- apart from Leica, you know, there were no other rangefinders on the market with TTL metering, and this was at a reasonable price point. They followed this up with the Bessa R, which was the first one that actually had a, uh, a proper rangefinder. It was uh, like a thread mount, LTM, like 39. It would take all like a screw mount lenses, plus the ones that they built. I had one of those. I did not have success with it because the uh, it had rangefinder calibration issues, and that the Model R is known in many cases for having rangefinder calibration issues. So I sold all that gear, and then uh, a while ago, a year and a half ago, I guess now, uh, I had the opportunity to buy the uh, the R2M kit, and I just love that kit. You know, I've talked about it before, so there's also the R2A, which is like the, an automatic. The I like the R2M because it's not battery-dependent, and if you don't have a battery, you can at least 
Sunny 16 it or you know use another meter. The R2A, no battery means go home. They've also had like the R3M. I think they got as far as the R4 series before uh, Casina decided, well, we'll just stop making the bodies, but we'll continue making the lenses. And by the time you got to the R2M and forward, you were no longer in the, like a screw mount, you were in the, the M mount. But of course, it's very, very easy and cheap to put a like a screw mount lens on an M mount because like it was smart enough to increase the flange distance by one millimeter back in the 50s. So um, now I've shot the R2M. Did they release the Bessas in any other lens mounts other than like a thread mount and the uh, bayonet M mount? I have not looked this up, but of course, as everyone in this table knows, my memory is just beyond reproach. Well, I, th I think, did they do a contacts mount? They did both a contacts and a Nikkor mount, the Nikkor S mount, which is sort of like... The Nikon rangefinder. You got it. Which is and also very close to the contacts mount, but not 100% compatible. It's like 98% or something. Uh, you do see them pop up on the market. Like they, it, It's a rather... It, I mean, gotta love Miss Kobayashi-san for... for Releasing a rangefinder, yes, let's just do one with a contacts mount. Why the heck not? Because, uh, uh, you know, the contacts 3As are, um, they're difficult to repair. They're highly complex pieces of camera jewelry. And the Nikon S, well, the Nikon S was just probably pure nostalgia's sake because Nikon made a whole bunch of great rangefinders, which I'd like to own one someday. Me too. We'll get there. Um, but the great thing about the Voigtlander uh, contacts mount is it gives you a nice expensive place to put your Jupiter 8 lens. Exactly. Now, that said, Voigtlander lenses, I, I, I shoot like I have an M3 and an M4 too, and I own the Voigtlander 3525 color scope R and screw mount, which lives on my um, M4 too with an M-mount adapter, and if I'm so inclined, I will take the adapter off and throw it on my Canon P. A lovely piece of glass. So if you're if you're someone who has a Leica body, but all of a sudden it's like, oh dear, that Leica glass or even Zeiss glass is a little like on the expensive side. Give Voigtlander a shot. Um, well, yeah, if you have a Leica body and you don't have Leica glass, sell your Leica body, buy a Bessa, and buy Voigtlander glass. Yeah, I mean, like who who cares about a Leica body? Yep. Yeah. And, and yeah. also, uh, uh, Voigtlander slash Casina had some true, like, if, if your tastes run to the wide. And, they had some and, great wide lenses. Oh, yeah. and, and if a 15 millimeter is just too telephoto like for you, they had, I believe, the 12, and if I'm not mistaken, a 10. And, and again, I thought my Nikon 14 to 24 yeah. was insanely wide at the 14 millimeter side. And so again, the 10 the is, rec like? is rectilinear. Um, Voigtlander auxiliary viewfinders are really, really nice, but they are damn expensive. Like I, I bought a 25 millimeter, it's called the Snap Scopar, Snapshot Scopar lens, which is a great. Um, like who needs focusing? It's not rangefinder coupled, but it doesn't matter at that uh, focal range. Um, but the one I got did not come with the auxiliary viewfinder. I ended up I had to pay 120 bucks to get the auxiliary viewfinder, and I got a deal. So, like the thing about the Cosina lenses, you know, these are not bargains, but these are lenses that hold their own with anything else on the market. No, and um, Cosina is not a bad producer of cameras. Not at all. They produced um, 
a uh, camera body for a Canon, one of the uh, T-Series lines. I believe the T60 was a Cosina. And also on the Nikon side, they produce the FM10. And uh, speaking of FM, this is a camera that is no stranger to the show or no stranger to a few people around the room, and that is the FM2N. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not a 2000 camera, well, it just squeaks under because it was produced... Until um, 2001. And there we go. Replaced by James's camera. So the Nikon FM2N, I will lead off and James will take it home. It is a lovely workhorse of a camera. If you had to only have one film camera system, like just one, and you've got a decent like kitty full of money to, to spend, get a decent clean FM2N. Get it overhauled and get like a three lens kit with a 28 2.8 AIS lens, which is one of the best lenses Nikon made, uh, a 51.8 or a 51.4, and then of course the 105 2.5, and you're pretty much covered. If you've got a little extra, you can spend for the 200 f4, maybe the 35 f2, and you got all your bases covered. It is a, basically a classic center-weighted metered mechanical SLR with a vertical copal shutter. It's got a pretty fast speed, 1 to 4,000 second with a 250 flash sync speed, which is pretty quick uh, in those, actually very quick in those days. Because a lot of cameras, I think, uh, if it was a horizontal shutter, you were lucky if you got, yeah, you got 1 60th and, hey, you're doing good. <laughs> Uh, the 1-250th, you, you've got a lot more to play with. And um, it's one of those cameras, again, I, I've talked about it in previous episodes. I think it was the cold weather episode. If you need one camera that could survive the harsh rigors of uh, a Canadian polar vortex, it'd be the FM2N that can operate probably down to like minus 40 before it starts giving you grief, if that. And um, it was also the camera that is uh, iconic because it's the one that took the Afghan girl photo by um, Steve McCurry. Exactly. And, you know, that looks good in both silver and black. Buy the one that you like the most. Absolutely. But Nikon did not stop with the FM2N. And um, the cream of the crop, the penultimate Nikon oh, mechanical camera. And the, the one, one I'm lusting after. Bill lusts after night and day, and that is the FM3A. Get your hands off my box, Bill. And my lens barrel. <laughs> we only just met. <laughs> you have to buy me another drink. And he likes pancakes. Oh, boy. Well, it wouldn't be a CCR podcast without some uh, some words to make sure you're all paying attention. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> Listen, the FM3A yeah, really is... Uh, it's kind of the end of end of the film camera era, I guess, if you will, sort of. Well, maybe not. I mean, I have an F6, so maybe that was kind of the end. But um, it was certainly, I think, one of the highlights of the chronology of film cameras. Because it was really, in this camera was released in 2001, which is essentially, I think, the, the crossroads of film and digital. Uh, it was kind of the, you know, the... The year, the you know, the early um, nascence of uh, of, uh, of digital photography, and surprisingly, rolling out of you know what I think could easily be argued as one of the most refined film cameras ever produced by Nikon. So, it was released in two thousand and one in July, 
actually released about three months uh, later than planned. It was actually scheduled for release for release in April 2001, but they had some supply issues because of the amount of new technology that was going into this camera. So this camera was um, the first uh, of Nikon's SLRs that incorporated both aperture priority and um, auto exposure modes, very similar to the uh, Nicker mats um, that was really using that way back in the early 70s, like around 1972. Um, obviously, uh, the convenience of having um, uh, aperture priority and a really good AE system, uh, you know, really made this an optimal uh, camera to use. One of the interesting things uh, from a technology standpoint with this camera is it has a hybrid shutter. So it has both a mechanically operated shutter and an electronically op operated shutter. And that's because it was the first, one of the first cameras to actually have um, a real viable um, uh, aperture priority uh, control mechanism. So when you do put the camera in aperture priority, uh, it switches the shutter to an electronically controlled shutter to guarantee shutter speeds and then it switches back to mechanical when you have the camera in uh, in manual mode so some just some interesting um stuff there so uh yeah really interesting that this camera was released in 2001 the same year that nikon released the d1x so um i you know i i'm, I'm curious uh, i wonder what this the strategy discussions in the nikon boardrooms would have been at the time um certainly it took a different turn um than kodak did but if you look back at the history of nikon digital cameras too in those years canon was leaps and uh leaps and bounds ahead of nikon when it came to digital cameras uh in that era as absolutely well, so. because nikon had joined forces with um kodak and was taking yeah. their film bodies and basically putting these giant Kodak backs yeah. onto them yeah. to make them digital images, exactly. digital cameras. Yeah. So they were both holding out. And I, I, you know, at some point, I think it was probably around 2007, 2008, Nikon had released the D3, uh, which was the first full-frame digital camera with really, really super like groundbreaking high ISO performance. And that, Surprisingly, yeah. that was about the first time I bought my first digital camera yeah. the uh, Minolta D-Image Z2. Yeah, oh, there you go, yeah. It was funny when Nikon sort of did their big cull on yeah. the film side of things. Yes. They got rid of the FM3A, which I thought was rather strange because you had all the Nikon film autofocus, which was like the F100, the... Uh, the F80 all the yeah. way on down to the cheap and cheerful stuff you'd probably find at Costco or Staples or Best Buy. Yep. And you had the FM10, which was the quote-unquote student camera. I was a little surprised they got rid of the FM3, which is sort of almost, I would call it a halo camera in some regards. And they did make it in a smaller facility that did. It was specifically yeah. for a special run yeah, and I think, you know, I'm a business nerd outside of being a camera nerd. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that Nikon has in comparison to Canon is a much, it's a much smaller organization. It's a much smaller corporation. Um, and they probably were doing that to um, divest a lot of the... Uh, uh, the plants and equipment and the expenses with film cameras. I think they made a decision or were in the process of making a decision to do that, to go to focus primarily on, on digital. Um, so I think they were probably raising money. Well, the other thing with Nikon versus Canon, Canon was also heavy into office products. Yes. Like yeah, so they printers, had the backbone, printers, print, printers, copiers. copiers. 
Like uh, literally, movie, it was movie cameras. They were big in video production as well. Like literally, there were there were sort of like an office products cinematic film, a cinematic camera company with a still camera company tacked on the backside, whereas Nikon was a camera company, and they also did medical optics, yeah. and they also did uh, lenses for eyeglasses and. And they haven't changed that much. No. You know, uh, like structurally, the company's still very similar. But uh, anyway, well, back to this camera. It's a terrific camera. It really, I think, you know what? It The the nice thing of what I really, why I really am a Nikon, Nikon fanboy, one of the biggest reasons is every time they release a camera, it's like kind of a natural evolution of refinement. So if you take the FM3A, it basically takes all the best features of the FE, the FE2, the FM, FM2, FM2N, etc. Says, okay, what are all the good pieces here? Let's put them all into one camera body. Now, that said, my favorite of the like sub-F uh, series of cameras has got to be the FA. Um, and simply because it's just got, it's just cool, man. It like does everything. Um, and for something that was released uh, 18 years earlier in 1983, you know, um, it seems like they did they did away with a lot of the techno stuff that they put into that camera, and then kind of stuck with the traditional features and functionality in the FM3A. So that said, I would say that the FM3A is probably the pinnacle of the photographer's camera yes it's got everything a photographer would want Mm -hmm. and And you take a look at the fm3a you take a look at the fa and um if you've ever picked up the um, nikon df yeah that's it's an fm3a it's an fm3a but it's a little bit fatter a little bit stockier but basically the same it's where the layout and everything and it's the nikon dslr that i would like yeah. If I ever say, like, I want a full-frame Nikon DSLR, it would be the DF. Yeah, the only weird thing with the DF I found, it looked more like an F4 with the FM series prism prism yeah. tacked yep. on top. It's got this almost the same dial layered as an F4, but with exactly. the Exactly. It would be familiar to me. Yeah. yeah. So I could pick it up and just... Get shooting now. If they only put dual card slots in that <laughs> oh, bad God. boy, yeah. well, that's 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 another podcast. I think I've oh, only, I know that's a I whole different load series. A single roll of film at a time. I don't need two digital card slots. Yeah, I mean, we don't need any more encouragement for the prayers and the spray or the sprayers and the prayers out there. So With spray and pray, absolutely. Yeah, it just means an additional twelve-hour session in Lightroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh Lord. So, you know, one of the cool things about this camera and, like, like why it's such a, a photographer's-minded camera, it's got some cool features. Uh, it's got a little button on the side. Um, so if you are, say, shooting uh, whatever mode, whatever you set your exposure at, if you're shooting with flash on this camera, you push a little button at the side, um, and it um, will drop the exposure by one stop. So automatically sets your camera up for fill flash. Uh, without having to make any adjustments, you just push the little button at the side. So um, certainly if you're doing event photography uh, with uh, any type of uh, Nikon flash system, uh, push that button. It's really good. You know, it's one of the, the my favorite things about the Nikon system is the the way the Nikon lighting system, the creative lighting system works. Nikon's flashes all operate independently of the camera body. They are not coupled, which makes life so much easier because you can control how your light behaves independent of the camera. And um, until you actually 
like do that shooting on a like a regular high volume basis you'll you won't understand what a convenience that is and then you'll understand why i dislike canon's lighting system so much because it is a coupled system and to get those two things thinking independently uh is is, you know it's a nightmare but anyway Back to this camera. So uh, another cool thing about this camera, it's got um, uh, 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 its own, it, they developed, a, I believe it was a K2 or, or a K3 uh, rather focusing screen uh, that was um, uh, a brighter type of focusing screen with a matte finish. So you could actually see uh, in a live view situation the um, the fall off and the shallow depth of field of F2 lenses. Uh, so uh, that was really kind of neat. Again, very much a photographer's minded design with this camera. Uh, like all of the sub Fs or this F series, FM2, FEs, etc. Takes an MD12 uh, motor drive. Uh, great camera. Um, no matrix metering on this thing like the FA. This is a, a center and spot weighted uh, metering system. So you know what? Uh, not going to really go into there. One of the real nice things about this camera that I like over the FA uh, my favorite type of, um, of metering, like in the viewfinder, is uh, is match needle. I really, really like match needle, and yes, because it's simple. Um, oh, hands down. LCDs are difficult to read. Match needle as well. You can actually expose to the tenth of a stop, um, or set adjust to yep. a tenth of a stop as opposed to a third with most um, uh, LCD uh, displays. So. That's why I really like the kind of analog um, uh, match needle viewfinder Absolutely. aspect of it. Uh, in terms of batteries, so, you know, every day run-of-the-mill um, uh, S76 or A76, uh, uh, a couple of those in there you can find at the, any grocery store. And the drive is double A. Drive is double A. Um, it's not too heavy of a camera. Obviously, a little more bulky, a little bit more weight with, uh, with, a, with a finder or a winder on it. Um, but not a bad camera in terms of weight. It's no. terrific. In terms, you know, you take the the winder off. It's your standard, um, you know, very compact yeah. uh, SLR size camera. Has an AE lock button on the back, so nice AE lock. Yep. Uh, so you can compo- you know you can meter for your composition, lock it, um, turn the meter on. Standard, pull the uh, uh, the advance lever out. Really, I think one of Nikon's one of their kind of best evolutions in 35 millimeter photography. It's a, it's a pinnacle camera. Yeah, it's, it's this is the one that you want. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I and really it comes like it. In chrome as well. It does come in chrome. It is not the cheapest Nikon that's no. out there, um, and that's because it was limited to the Japanese market. Yes, it was, and it was only it was produced. I think for four years. I think it was 2001 to 2000. Actually, it was available here. I've seen it. Lo- I was saw it locally in local camera shops. This camera was bought in Toronto, mm-hmm. the, like new. So this mm-hmm. was uh, Nikon Canada did bring them in. But it, but I think to Alex's point, it was from a marketing standpoint, it was meant as a jewelry item. Yeah. For the Japanese market, like a, a high end kind of. Because I saw it at a camera store in Etobicoke, not far from Blur and Islington. The okay. camera store is long yeah. gone. And it was the digital era. Kind of did a number yep. on it, like you wouldn't believe. Like a lot of them, but yeah, it's... I have a black one. Uh, certainly, I would prefer a chrome one, but you know what? In a few years, if this thing's banging around in my camera bag, I'm going to look pretty cool with all the brassing that's going to appear. Yeah, absolutely. So. I want mine in chrome if I can, failing that black. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it's it's a lovely camera. Um, if you're, you know, I know Bill had said, if you're going to have one body, 
FM2N. Well, I'm gonna want, I'm gonna raise you an FM3A bill. Oh, absolutely. But, I uh, would I would get rid of my FA. I would get a, rid of my F90. I would get rid of my F2 and my FE, and I would buy an FM. Like the, the shutter on this thing is incredible. Like it's it is it gorgeous. is just well made. Like yeah, you know. Um, it doesn't have the honeycombing like the uh, the FA shutter does, but whatever, um, whatever, who cares? <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, I don't even know what that does, but uh, yeah. uh, I love it. Like I, this is it's a terrific, terrific camera, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, in terms of lens compatibility, you know, all you know, all the lenses. Obviously, you're going to have to stop down if you're going to be if you're going to stop down metering if you're going to be using any of the gelded lenses, but uh, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't really use a gelded lens on this camera, nope. but you, you know it's compatible the, uh, with all the pre seventy seven, all, all the you know all the obviously your you know AI AIS is obviously ideal for this camera, yep. but you, know, you can use pre AI lenses and you, you can know, use D type on those yeah. just as well. Yep, because those are AIS close, lenses. Yeah, just close the shutter, the uh, the aperture down, and you're fine. Yeah. Um, continuing on with the uh, Nikon, and James actually mentioned the uh, camera, and that would be the Nikon F eighty. And I picked up um, the Nikon F80 in 2009, ironically, the same year that the Film Photography Podcast first started um, First started Say out. Say hi to Mike. Hey, Mike. Mr. Asso. Yeah. Hello, sir. If you aren't listening to the FPP, you really should. Um, but this was the camera that turned me away from Minolta. Now, I had shot Minolta for my first... Um, my first real camera, the Hymatic 7S, my first SLR, the SRT-102, my first semi-automatic SLR, the X7A. Um, but I was sort of aiming for a digital camera, and that would have been the Maxim 7D. But then all of a sudden, Minolta sold all its stuff to Sony. And those early Sony digital SLRs did mean not... Fisher-Price, my first digital SLR? Yeah. Were, were, weren't exactly the ergonomics that I looked for in a camera. They felt so cheap. Oh, exactly. I hated it. Ironically, I today my digital camera is a Sony A6000, but that is a very nice camera, and I can actually use my Minolta lenses. I will say that Nikon lenses and Pentax lenses and contacts lenses and screw mount lenses, etc., etc., etc. But the F80, that was a beautiful camera. It was autofocus. Um, I believe Kodak and Nikon put some digital backs onto it, and it really made me shoot Nikon. And now I have about an even number of Minolta manual focus cameras and Nikon auto and manual focus cameras at the same time. For a beginner, fantastic camera. Excellent metering system. It was basically what the F90 is to the F4. Um, it felt very much like um, the early Nikon digital cameras, the D1, the D2. Um, inexpensive, but what really made it for me was the addition of the battery grip onto it and i threw that battery grip on it for one reason i wanted an f5 i now own an f5 so i can now see like yeah this this feels right it was the camera that really made me go 
back to film from digital. I was shooting super zoom cameras in the digital line, and then I got a D70S, and all of a sudden all my lenses I had for my F80 worked on my D70S. I didn't need, other than the kit lens, to get that wide-angle end of things, anything. Nikon really got it right. Like the FM3A for the manual focus cameras, the F80 was perfect for the autofocus shooters. It was modern, it was new, and just just a camera that made me love photography again, beyond the technical aspects of it. It came with it came in on all my early explorations. I shot surprisingly, I shot not so much in the way of black and white film, but I shot a lot of slide film and color negative film on it. And every time it was spot on with the exposure. It was easy to use. It was simple to use. Um, it wasn't an FM10. It had weight to it. It had... Uh, it was just... It was a man's camera. Hands down. But like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, digital was starting to come up. And I mean, you could take your film to a one-hour photo lab and get it scanned when it was processed, but... In reality, a lot of us around the table are very particular about how we like our film scanned. So, one thing we haven't talked about on these um, on this episode before, and it's not because we hate digital. We don't hate digital. We like digital. It's it's all just photography. It's a means to the end. It's it doesn't matter what you shoot. If you love photography, you love photography, and it's just. A medium, but honestly, the film photography community has seen a huge resurgence thanks to the internet. And to put your film on the internet, you need to scan it. And a lot of people use digital cameras to scan their film. In fact, Nikon actually has an adapter that you can put on a macro lens to quote unquote scan your film. But personally, around the table, we are all film scanners like traditional purpose-built attached to your computer scan the film we are all pretty much epson users around the table so we're going to start with mr bill smith and how he scans his film okay uh i own an epson v600 i think i'm on my third one because i tend to wear them out Goes to show you how much film I shoot in a given year. Uh, so I um, use an Epson V600 since I only shoot 35 and 120. I'd love to sort of trade up at some point to an 800 or an 850. But yeah, that's a that's a big chunk of change. To they are that. not cheap. No, they're not. My brother has one, but he's a he's a partner at a large global accounting firm. So yeah, he's got the budget for those sort of toys. Anywho, so. Um, my workflow when I'm uh, – because, again, if I'm, if I'm scanning, uh, if I'm going to print color these days, I'm going to be doing it like a lot of other people are. Yeah, it's either going to be an inkjet or onto like uh, like sheet aluminum. You got no choice because the traditional in-the-dark room, C-print, uh, that's kind of hard to come by. And it's a real pain in the butt. <laughs> You're going to go through a lot of sheets before you get that that color cast yeah, correct. You, you need well, a yeah. dark 
room. Yes. There oh, is yeah. no light in these rooms. And you know what? Let's face it. Even like when I was solely an analog photographer in my you know teenage years and early 20s, I mean, unless you printed full time, you either shot or you were a darkroom guy. You know, you were a photographer or you were a printer. Um, and because you, you could do both, but you know, either you're mediocre at doing both. But like, I'm a, I consider myself a. T- I, I print my own black and white. I've got an improvised dark room with a furnace room at my house. I've got well, one enlarger in a box, a Lights V35 autofocus enlarger, which is a beautiful gem I got to use more often. And then I got my big monster Devere 504, which I use for my 35 and sometimes 120. But getting back to scanning, we're kind of wandering around. I use the Epson V600. I when I when I scan, I scan into a TIFF file, and I try and go the biggest quality I can because again, it comes down to especially for medium format because my Devere is a little like needs some aligning and uh, story for another time. Uh, I, I it, it comes to a point. I got a, fr- a couple of friends who own labs, and I just I just go to them saying, "Hey, look, can you do something with a square print?" And they're more than happy to oblige. But 35 mil, I print myself and without any hassle. So again, like I said earlier, I print into a TIFF file. I scan in. I use a view scan. Because I am in a Mac ecosystem, the native Epson interface, well, well, Epson, um, they have to realize some people do use Macs out there. And... Uh, ViewScan is a small, it's made by a company called Hamrick. It's a, I think sort of a tiny uh, family business and they do, they're very digital and diligent with their updates, which means they've just sent me a reminder. I got to update my ViewScan module. I scan into 64-bit RGB um, and I import into Lightroom 5 because I haven't gotten around to doing the whole subscription thing. Because again, at some point I want to upgrade my computer system to something latest and greatest and that will probably be an expense for next year so i take it into lightroom 5 i will then sort of get rid of any dust um, any foreign matters you know nothing major like maybe a little tiny bit of sharpening again depending on the film and camera i'm using sometimes i don't i don't even have to do that so really it's just sort of cleaning it up cropping and then I export into like a JPEG uh, for the internet, the interwebs, and then it will wind up eventually on Facebook. And, you know, the various groups I belong to or up on Flickr, which eventually also gets published to my photo blog. And that's how I generally share electronically. And then if I were to say print something, especially if it's medium format, then I'll just uh, either a send a copy of the cleaned up TIFF file to uh, a lab or a high-res JPEG file that I've done, depending on what their requirements are. I've always used Epson scanners. I started with the Epson V700 because I told myself I would never do large format. And then I visited Rochester, visited um, Dick Ross's store, and picked up a modified speed graphic. I say modified because they had basically yanked the uh, focal plane shutter for use with um, aerial photography. It actually had a Linhoff um, mount on the side for a grip. Yeah, the grip wasn't there. So when I started shooting 4x5 seriously, I upgraded to the Epson V700, which can do 35mm, 120, and 4x5, and 8x10. 
but I've only shot 8x10 once, and the film I exposed had actually been exposed before without knowing. Oops. Oops. Is right, and it was plus X, too. <laughs> Damn, that's got to hurt. Oh, well. That leaves a mark. So, I act, because I run Windows at home, um, Windows 8.1, please don't kill me, I actually like it. Because Windows will want to have a, Microsoft will probably want to have a chat with you at some point. Oh, well. And we don't have to kill you, 8.1 will do it for us. <laughs> um, so, I actually use the stock Epson scanning software, and I use it as just that. I have everything unchecked. It basically scans to a TIFF file, and that's that. That's all I use it for. I find it simple. It doesn't take much time. I know the interface. A lot of my post work I do in Photoshop. And from there, I adjust levels. I adjust curves. I have a bunch of curves preset that I can just load up. I'm like, okay, I'm shooting Tri-X. Boom, boom, boom. There's my curve. Boom. It makes it look to the way I like it. And that's honestly what I like about scanning film is that like working in a dark room, you can do dodge, you can do burns, you can crop. I have no problems with digital. I have no problems with people scanning their films and doing it how they like it. That's photography. You make the image how you like it. I think a hybrid process is any bit as legitimate as any other, like to be honest. Absolutely. I mean, from the Victorian times, they were editing photos to the point where it looked like you were holding your head. They used to, they used to hand paint color in photos. That's oh, yeah. right. And sort of Some get, people still do. Yep. Yeah. yeah. If anything, I, again, sort of with the whole scanning, the whole idea is do more than just throw it up online. Yeah. Rent your work. Yes. Like, I am actually sort of like, you know, we've got services like Blurb. Put together a photo book. And yeah. I'm I use slowly working on mine. All all my books that I produce are are done through Blurb, and I've done my War of eighteen twelve um, project, and it's been published through Blurb. Um, I'm working on one right now that takes place after the War of eighteen twelve, leading up to Confederation Canadian Confederation in eighteen sixty seven. That's being done f- through Blurb. I produced a work of um, my urban exploration work, my um, photography through the Presbyterian Young People Society, and almost all the projects that I'm really proud of, I do through Blurb. And that's just it. Again, then I, from the TIFF files, I save it as a JPEG. And from there, I'll either print through um, Burlington Camera or even through Henry's. If I'm just doing snapshots from trips and vacations that we want to print and display, I'll, I'll just upload them to Henry's and they call me and I drive the 15 minutes down the road from Sheridan College and I'm there. I pick them up. But then it's a physical and that's the great thing about A, processing my own film, scanning my own film, I get the prints that I want and I like. Yeah. Well, it's very true, and I think regardless of whether or not you shoot film or digital, uh, if you're a photographer, you need to have a printed portfolio yes. of your work. Otherwise, you're just some guy or girl with a camera. Yep. Like, if, you know, you need to show, you need, number one, you need to finish your work, yep. and you need to print it and show your work. Otherwise, why bother? Yep. You know, exactly. just give me your money. 
Yeah. I'll buy a camera and I'll print and show my own work. Yeah. And that goes for everyone, the rest of us around the table and those of us who aren't here today. And uh, so software-wise, we've talked about um, ViewScan and the Epson um, software, but there is another scanning software out there, and that's Silverfast, and that's something that James Lee uses. Yeah, so I, I have a couple different scanners. Um, I have a big, huge 11 by 17 Epson 10,000 XL film scanner uh, that cost me a small fortune, and I have a PlusTech 120 scanner. Um, I'm still in the process of building my darkroom for printing, so right now I scan everything. Um, I use a, uh, a scanning software called uh, Silverfast. Uh, it's, it's a German-made um, software, and again, similar challenge to build. I'm on a Mac uh, platform, um, so a lot of the scanner, and it's Epson too, and even PlusTech for that matter, don't have their own native uh, or robust enough native scanning tool. So both of my scanners actually shipped with a copy of uh, of Silverfast, and then I've been upgrading my Silverfast over the years. So I'm on version eight point something right now. Um, I really like Silverfast. It's I will you know, granted, it's a little bit clunky. It's not you know, we're not talking like you know, web based Google software development cycles here. Like you know, it's probably it's a smaller company. Um, the interface is a bit clunky, but it works. So my system allows me on my big flatbed scanner, I can scan uh, about one and a half uh, rolls of, uh, of 35 millimeter film in one batch. Um, so I can, you know, it's about, I, I guess, like 56, 60 exposures. Um, it takes about um, 45 minutes to go and scan each one. You, uh, with the way that software works... Um, it's got some film profiles already stored in it, so it's got some manufacturer profiles for like Tri-X or uh, some of the um, uh, Agva films, you know, whatever, uh, Kodak, Ilford, um, some Fuji films in there as well. Um, and basically, it, it sets the contrast and color cast removal for a lot of those films, and then there's some black and white films. Basically, set one frame, so set all your exposures for one grouping of frames, and then you can copy all those settings to subsequent frames. Um, I don't really tinker around too much with going frame by frame and adjusting things. I generally scan to what I, what I call flat, which is basically just minor exposure corrections and very, very minor contrast corrections. Um, I will then further adjust contrast and uh, exposure and mid-tone contrast and um, vibrance and that sort of thing in Lightroom. Uh, but once you set that up in, uh, in, in Silverfast, it kind of just goes on autopilot. You set up a batch and it, it, you just leave the computer alone. An hour later, you come back, all your stuff is scanned. Um, I will say that um, I don't try to get the largest possible file because there just isn't the amount of data there and I don't want artifacts and then um, there you know it's almost like a theory of diminishing returns if you pump up that um, that DPI really really high you're just gonna get a huge file but the data is actually not there in the film so I usually scan um, my 35 and 120 film at 2400 DPI my 4 by 5 I drop it down to 1200 right it's a, a lot of for yeah, me too. yeah yeah a lot of times I don't go higher than 1200 DPI um, with a lot yep. but I mean it really depends on your scanner though too That's so right. like you know 1200 DPI on my scanner is not going to be the same as 1200 DPI on uh, on say an Epson 
V750 V750 or 600 or or, or an older scanner. And then, of course, on my PlusTech scanner, which is a dedicated 120 scanner, it does scan 35 millimeter, but it's a dedicated, built for, for 120, optimized for 120. Um, you know, similar. I don't go over 1200 DPI uh, with that scanner either. It also works with Silverfast. Um, it's an excellent scanner uh, for anything. I'm going to print big, and I want the best possible scans of my 120 negs. That's what I'm going to use. Um, in terms of adjustments, I uh, I export or I output to all TIFF files, um, and I I export to 48-bit files because I want the most amount of data. I do not scan my, I scan my black and white negatives in full color, um, and then I import them as full color files. And the reason I I don't scan them as monochrome images uh, is because I want as much data as possible out of the scanner. Then when I import those TIFF files, basically it's like a a digital negative at that point. Into Lightroom, I will do my cropping. Uh, so I'll refine the cropped edges uh, to the whatever you know the aspect ratio of the camera I was using, and then um, uh, once that's done, I will first thing I do to all of the files at the same time in Lightroom is I knock the saturation down to zero. So yep. I'm not, technically not removing the color data. I'm just saying there's no color in this image. Yep. Um, and then I will go and I will do my. Um, I will start with my exposure. Then I will change the tonality of my image if I want to, and I'll I'd make a white balance adjustment in Lightroom. And then that's when I'll get into um, any tweaking of the image, so bumping the mid-tone contrast, shadows, highlights, that sort of thing. I'll do all of that stuff. I, I like my images a bit more contrasty, a little bit more sharp than I think most people do. Mm. So then I add my own sort of look uh, that I'm looking for, and a lot of that is with the clarity slider in Lightroom. Uh, and the vibrant slider, and then of course the blacks and shadow detail and that sort of thing. So, I always run my film scan through the uh, Nick. Um, oh yeah, the, the uh, silver. Uh, uh, pardon me, the Nick software. Um, Nick software. Yeah. The uh, uh, what is this? what do they call their black and white one? The Silver Effects Pro. Silver Effects Pro. I yeah. use that yeah. mostly for my digital images, yeah. but they have um, a sharpening utility. They oh have, okay. And, oh yeah, that comes in the whole suite. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that oftentimes um, the scans are a little bit soft mm-hmm. for me because of the nature of you know scanning film. Well, yeah, because the, the negative doesn't always sit it, yeah. the most flattest in the uh, carriers and that sort of thing. Oh, so. that's a podcast in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. Own, so yeah. I just that's just how I like my f- my images yeah. to look. And if there's anything you take out of this episode, it's don't worry about what we do. Make it the way you yeah, like if it. Yeah, if you can yeah. get it to the way you like it, that's all that matters. Unless like, someone is paying you, yes. don't worry about it. Yeah. And the problem with something like this, it's actually sort of almost a, a self-directed journey in some regards. because Absolutely. Because my workflow isn't going to work for you. Exactly. It's not going to work for anyone else at this table. But it's like, yeah, you've got to figure out... Ooh, what your end vision is going to be, what it's going to look like, whether it's going to be pixels or on paper and say, okay, that's the vision I want. This is what I need to do to get to that destination. But there, um, as much as you can do with um, post-processing, there's a lot that you can do with your actual scanner. And let's face it. Sometimes these scanners we get, they don't have the best film carriers. They don't have the best glass, but there is an answer to that. Okay, thanks, Alex. So I have a, an Epson Photo Perfection 850. 
I'm actually on my second one because the first one started sounding like uh, the transmission of a late 80s Skoda on crystal meth. But luckily, Not a K car? No. But uh, luckily, it was still under warranty. And credit to Epson, they, uh, they, I, got, I called them on the phone, described the problem. They had another one shipped out. before. I, and I didn't have to ship the old one back. It was at their expense, by the way, until I got the new one. So kudos to Epson. And, yeah, it seems like a lot of the problem with uh, scanning tends not to be the scanner itself. It, it's the holders. And, like, I've had an Epson 500, a 700, and now the 850. And some, not all holders are created equal. The holders are crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is... That's not, putting it mildly. I, I've never known such... It, it's such brilliant... It's mature technology now, and Epson does a great job, but it's like, put some money into the holders, please. Now, the uh, the 850, they have made some progress. The uh, First of all, it comes with two sets of holders for each format, like 35... Uh, 120 slides, 4x5, so I'll give them that. The 35mm holders now for the Epson are excellent because, A, they're adjust they, they have five levels of height adjustment, plus they have built-in A&R or anti-Newton reflection. It's not glass, it's plexiglass. Oh, nice. But it holds the negatives flat. Now, the, um, the, the 120 holders for the uh, for the 850, even though it has the uh, the ANR, it sucks because it is the wrong size. Half the time, the film won't lie flat. So I'm I'm thankful. I still have something that I got when I got my uh, V700, or, or I believe was uh, there's a place called BetterScanning.com. They are still around, okay. and they produce ANR products. And so I have a. Um, a nice solid 120 uh, size uh, film holder. It holds uh, two strips. So let's say if I'm shooting the Hasselblad, it's uh, it'll shoot uh, six frame or it'll scan six frames, and it has two nice pieces, nice heavy pieces of A and R glass, not plastic glass. This was not a cheap holder. This cost no. me close to two bills. Um, but it makes such a huge difference. I just love having the A&R and on the 35 as well because there are some films, you know, like Tri-X, certain times of the year, it cups. It cups badly. Yes. But with the A&R, it, uh, it makes it so much easier to scan and the same for the 120. So if you're going to buy an Epson scanner and you're doing some 120 film, I would budget to get an aftermarket uh, film holder. Yes. In terms of my process, I use uh, Lightroom CC Classic. I'll use the Nick effects for Solid. some, for some, uh, af- for some post-processing. And my own sort of ethics is if it's something that I could do in a dark room, whether it's contrast, exposure, vignetting, localized burning and dodging, uh, even toning, I have no problem doing that no, digitally absolutely. because, again, at the end of the day, it comes down to does the image work or does it not work? Anything else is Do irrelevant. I like it? Exactly. Well, that's, that's it for this episode. My name's Alex Lokes, and I really don't mind digital, but I certainly prefer film. This is John Meadows, and for a change, I have nothing scatological to say. Whether you scan, print... Get your work out there. That's what it's about. This is James Lee. It doesn't matter what I like. It matters what you like. 
it looks good to you, shoot it and print it. And this is Bill Smith, and I'm going to echo what both James and John have said. Print and put it together the way you like it.